It's amazing in life where you can learn lessons from all sorts of different sources. So who would have thought that an old burned out fairy tale hero would teach us a lesson on motherhood? I wouldn't have. Now, full disclosure, when I was raised as a kid, I watched some Disney movies, but I wasn't a Disney junkie. It was actually me who was a trendsetter. I made fun of Disney before it was cool to do so. I was more into explosions with spy kids, with ogres like Shrek, but I saw some Disney movies. In 1991, the movie Hook came out, and Robin Williams played an adult Peter Pan. He had adult issues, adult concerns. He was kind of burned out. But sadly for Peter Pan, sometimes problems don't go away. He still had bad blood between himself and Captain Hook. So Captain Hook comes back and he actually kidnaps Peter Pan's kids, which forces Peter Pan to go back into Neverland to get him back. And towards the end of the movie, Peter Pan has his kids, he has Captain Hook surrendered, he has him by the sword, and right before he's about to take him out, his daughter says, don't do it, daddy. He's just a mean old man without a mommy. (laughs) And he pauses, he reflects on this, he has a change of heart. It's the Disney magic moment. And all throughout the Peter Pan stories, there's this constant theme. The heartache, the pain, most of the destruction in the world can be solved by a mother's love. And we love the sentimentality of that. It gives us a smile thinking of that love. We might get the warm fuzzies feeling that. But if you're a mother this morning, you might feel another thing from a statement like that. Pressure. That's a lot of pressure, right? Because it's on you. The heartache of tomorrow, well, you could solve it. If there's bad things in the world, well, it's kind of your fault. And so there's this crushing pressure that comes with that as well. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing for a Mother's Day message. Because I know some of you, as you were getting ready, as you were piling into the car, you might come to this service with some dread. Right? You'd rather do 10 loads of laundry than hear a Mother's Day sermon. Because for one group of you, you've been to churches where you think, hey, let's open up Proverbs 31 and learn about a woman who gets up early, who stays up late, who runs the perfect household, who's the perfect parent, who's an entrepreneur and has a side hustle, who's the perfect socialite. And you think, come on, that is a high standard. That's a crazy ideal. I was just finishing cleaning up somebody who puked, and now I have to make some lunches, and I'm just trying to make life work. And we feel this impossible standard, this pressure on our shoulders. For another group, you come getting ready for Mother's Day with a little bit of dread as well, because it's a painful day. It's a day that reminds you of when you wanted to be a mother, and you're trying to be a mother, but you might not be able to. It's a day that reminds you of that empty spot next to you in the pew, that empty chair at the dinner table used to be filled with your mother who's no longer with you. For some, you have a complicated relationship with your mom. There might be a lot of hurt, a lot of baggage, a lot of pain. Maybe you didn't know your mom, and so Mother's Day is just a reminder 
that brings up some anger and some hurt inside. And so for all groups today approaching this topic that has all sorts of emotions attached to it, I'll tell you this, you can relax. You can relax this morning because I'm not here to place impossible standards to crush the mothers in the room, and I don't want to make it a more painful reminder for those of you who feel those hard feelings. Today, what I want us to look at is what we can do to make an impact on the next generation, what we can do to raise the next generation. Your children, if you're a mother, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your nieces, your nephews, if you're an aunt, your students, if you're a teacher, the kids on your team, if you're a coach, the kids in the small group, if you're a small group leader. What can we do to make an impact, to raise the next generation? And we're going to do this through looking at the life of a pretty amazing woman, a pretty amazing mother. In fact, she's mentioned few times in the Bible, but she has a huge impact. We see her name in Numbers 2659. Her name's Yochebed. Now, maybe that sounds familiar. For most of you, it probably doesn't, but I bet you know her son. She's the mother of Moses, or Moses' mama, Yochebed. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2. That's going to be our main text today. We'll also take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. But while you're turning there to Exodus 2, I'll tell you this. While we're looking at Yochebed, who is a mother, fathers, single men and women, aunts, uncles, you guys aren't off the hook. This is a message for all of us on what we can do to raise the next generation. Exodus chapter 2. The first thing we see it takes is it takes courage. It takes the strength to do the right thing with when adversity can see the whites of your eyes. As we open up Exodus chapter 2, it's a pretty dark time in history. And to get a little bit of this backstory and understanding, I'm actually going to start reading in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. So you could follow along with me there. Exodus 1.8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread over the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." So the people of Egypt are scared. They're in dread. The nation of Israel has lived in their land for 400 years, and this small minority is growing bigger and bigger. And the new king, the new leader, the pharaoh, he forgot about their past history, and he sees this small culture, this small people group, and thinks, they might overthrow us. If we get in a war, they might join the other side and try to beat us, so we got to hold them down. 
So he tries to break their spirits and break their numbers by making them slaves in Egypt. But as we just read, God blessed them. They continue to grow in number. So then Pharaoh does something despicable. He turns up the heat. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sapphira and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So it is a dark time. Pharaoh makes this national mandate. If you see a little baby boy and he's a Hebrew, drown him, throw him in the river. Now, I know this isn't a pleasant thing to think about on Mother's Day, but go there for a minute. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the fear. They lived in a volatile, violent world. The trauma that you'd have to endure. Because no doubt some people followed through on that. What you'd seen living back then. And then imagine one day you start to feel a little sick in the morning. You start to feel a little different. You notice a little bump and you realize that you're pregnant with a child. Well, that's exactly what happened to Yochebed. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, Yochebed. Verse 2 says, The woman conceived and bore a son. Just imagine that. She's pregnant. She doesn't know. Is it a girl? Is it a boy? God, why now? This is the worst time. I could be pregnant, the worst time imaginable. And then it's a son living with the fear, thinking, hey, if there's some patriotic Egyptian that comes by, that will be the end of my son's life. The fear this woman had in the world that she lived in, having children in it. It reminds me of some mothers and parents around the world today. You know, in some places in our world, it's a real fear that your child could get ripped from your arms to become a soldier in some militia. Or if it's in a war-torn country, they could be ripped from your arms and killed. That's a real threat. But I also think of the parents, the grandparents, the aunts, uncles, the leaders, the fathers, the mothers, raising children here today in America, in our world. Now, we aren't under direct persecution here. I don't want to make that comparison. Sometimes as Christians, we get this little complex where if there's construction on our street, well, it's persecution. Or if Disney didn't turn out to be the Christian entertainment empire we thought, well, it's persecution. We're not under direct persecution, but there's still forces in our world that can make our kids be way on in over their heads. 
They can feel in over their heads in a culture that blurs right and wrong, morality, and just makes it all one big blur and calls you a bigot or intolerant if you think there are some moral absolutes and truths in our world. They can feel like they're drowning in a world that promotes sex and promiscuity and lust. And these aren't just harmless things, they can ruin lives. They feel weighed down, gasping for air with the pressure in our world that defines your value based on your performance, on your grades, on how much money you make, and cares a lot less about the character of who you are. It's a scary time to raise kids in a volatile, violent, crazy world. And then we see Jochebed in this crazy time when God appointed her to be a mother show incredible courage. In verse 2 of Exodus 2, it says, She conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So she did what she could to keep a lid on this secret that she had a baby boy. Now, if you flip with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little more insight here. Hebrews 11 is a chapter, has a, a nickname called the Hall of Faith. And Jochebed actually made it in here in verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they showed tremendous courage here. Think about how hard that would be to keep it a secret that you have a newborn baby. I mean, it's hard. They cry. They're loud. They're totally dependent. I'm amazed that some baby hasn't made their presence known in this service here today. For three months, hiding, keeping that child quiet, not knowing who's walking by and what they would do if they found out. You know, a lot of times we think about faith as something passive. You just got to let go and let God. But Jochebed shows us here that courageous faith is active. Ultimately, it's choosing to honor God and do what's right, live up to the responsibilities he's given us, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what man thinks. Fear of God over fear of man. Courage is an action. And I know for some of you here today, mothers, fathers, parents, grandparents, you've shown that courageous faith. For some, the courageous act might be taking your kids here to church when your spouse doesn't support that. For some, the courageous act might be giving up a lucrative career, giving up the dream, the dink, double income, no kids, to raise your kids successfully in how you think they should be raised. For some, it might be the opposite, picking up some more hours or another job or a part-time job to provide for the kids and for the responsibility that God has given you. For some, that courageous act might be adopting a child who would live their whole life in an orphanage or on their own when you can't have your own children. These courageous acts of faith, that's what it takes. Raising the next generation isn't for the faint of heart, especially in the world we live in, so it takes courage. But not only does it take courage, we also need to trust in God's care. What it takes to raise the next generation is trusting in God's care. 
in verse 3, we come to a point in Jochebed's life where I would bet you this was the hardest decision she's ever had to make. She's hid her son for three months, but she can't keep doing it any longer, and so she makes a decision. Verse 3 says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So Jochebed did what she could. She showed that courageous faith, those courageous actions in the midst of a volatile world. But ultimately, she had to leave her child's care in God's hands. She did what she could. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't passive. But ultimately, it's in God's hands. She puts him in a basket or an ark in the Hebrew and puts him in the Nile River, a river known for having crocodiles. And sure, she was smart. She put him by the river bank, and she has a spy, Moses' older sister, looking to see what happens. But the child is helpless. He's in God's care. And for parents, leaders, coaches, teachers, mothers, ultimately, the destiny, the outcome of the next generation is in God's hands. And that's a hard lesson to learn because we want control. We love these people. We want to see them have a fulfilling, successful life. We want to see them love God. If we're honest, we want to see them be comfortable and happy as well. And sometimes the pressure we feel from others or the pressure we put on ourselves is really just an outcome of us wanting to have control, thinking it's all on us. You know, if they're in church every time the doors are open, if they're crushing it at the football games, if they're going to be the next Rhodes Scholar, if they're super social, if we get them in all these extracurricular activities, then they will guaranteed have a great life. And it doesn't work that way. We're not in control. Ultimately, God is. And so we have to trust in his care. It used to be the New York Times crossword puzzle. Then it was Sudoku. And now the new hit raging puzzle game is Wordle. Wordle is the hit right now. Just out of curiosity, how many people use Wordle? Okay, we got some. Maybe you've already guessed the word for the day. Basically, you put a combination of letters together and guess the word of the day. And when I was thinking about Wordle, I read a really interesting article. First off, I didn't know that there's a world's puzzle championship. Maybe you knew that. I didn't know it. So people who live, breathe, dream, sleep puzzles and mind games, they all descend to some city in the world and get together and, I guess, do a lot of crosswords and figure out who's the best. And I found this out in an article written by a man named Will Shorts, who's the crossword editor for the New York Times. And he had this really interesting thought. He was asked, why is there such an obsession with puzzles? For a lot of years, puzzles seem to be timeless. And he said this. He said, we're faced with problems every day in life, and we almost never get clarity. We jump into the middle of a problem. We carry it through to whatever extent we can to find an answer. And then 
It's just the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. You start the challenge from the beginning, and you move all the way to the end. That's a satisfaction you don't get much in real life. You feel totally in control, and that is a great feeling. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to have control of the problems in my life, and honestly, just of life in general. But I can't think of something that has higher stakes than raising the next generation. We love them. We pour our lives into them. We want it to turn out a certain way. But the hard lesson we need to learn is God is ultimately in control of their life and of the outcome. We need to trust in his care. And so that means sometimes the hard things, the hard things of letting your child make mistakes, of letting that teenager you're mentoring learn a lesson the hard way, trusting in God's care, trusting in God's care, even if that means your adult children pursue a vocation halfway across the country. But we know that God is good. We know that he cares. You know, all throughout Exodus chapter 2, God's name isn't even mentioned once. Does that mean he's absent from the story? No, not at all. We'll see in a minute that God was working through this time. God had his hands in Moses' life and in what was going on at this very dark time in the country, in the nation, for the Israel people. So we need to have courageous faith to raise the next generation, but we must also trust in God's care. And lastly, what we need to raise the next generation is we need to instill love for God in others. We need to instill love for God and love for others. What happens next in our story here of Moses floating the Nile River is pretty amazing. Verse 5 of Exodus 2. It says, The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now think about this. Was it just a coincidence that Jochebed got pregnant during this time? And was it just a coincidence that she gave birth to a son? And was it just a coincidence that she could hide him for three months? And was it just a coincidence that he floated down this crocodile-infested water safe? And was it just a coincidence Pharaoh's daughter found him? And was it just a coincidence Moses' sister said, hey, I have a nurse for you? And was it just a coincidence that it was Moses' birth mother, who was the nurse, who now gets paid to nurse and raise her little boy? I don't think so. It was God working behind the scenes, taking care of this woman, 
Jochebed and her son, Moses. And what's very interesting is Moses becomes royalty. You see in verse 10 that he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was the prince of Egypt. He had it all. Every time they went on vacation, it was five stars. It was the Ritz-Carlton. He had limo service. He had so much money, he didn't have to think about money. Moses had the life that most people dreamed about, being royalty back then. But as we flip one more time to Hebrews 11, we learn something interesting that shows us the impact Jochebed had on her son. Hebrews 11, this time verse 24. It said, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused that. Now imagine this, slip on the sandals of somebody back then. They didn't have water coolers, so maybe it was the camel hitching post where they did all their small talk. Hey, did you hear about Moses? He's leaving the royal family. What is he doing? That's stupid. This guy's an idiot. A lot of the same way we talk about politicians today, right? Back then, they're thinking, what is this guy doing? Why would you make that choice? And that's a great question. Why? Why would Moses give this up? Slave nation or royalty? Nothing or all the wealth in the world? He could feel sympathy for the people and still stay in the royal family. But no, he refused to be identified with them. And I'll tell you this, I propose that Jochebed passed on her faith to Moses here. She, she followed in the faith of her ancestors, of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And she raised her son, she nursed him and raised him as a little boy. He knew his Hebrew identity. He saw the people suffering and oppressed. And Moses went after them. Jochebed passed on her faith to him, but also a love for others. He could just watch from a distance and live a great life himself. But Moses said, no, I am going to be with these people. And ultimately, we saw what God did with that. Moses led those people. And so today, I'm guessing that no youth, no child we know will become president of the United States. I'm guessing. I think it's an even smaller chance of anyone becoming royalty. But the next generation, you know what they will become? They'll become doctors, teachers, engineers, contractors, politicians, plumbers, maybe even heads of corporations. They'll get some great scholarships. Mom and dad, they might make more money than you one day. And as they are adults, the question will be, what will they do with the resources, with the power, with the things that they have? Our world says, hoard them for yourself. Keep them for your security. Indulge, enjoy the pleasures of this life. And we should enjoy the gifts God has given us. But will we just keep them for ourselves? Or will we love others? Will we serve others with what we've been given? Jochebed, we can take a play from her book here. She raised her son in the faith to identify with God's people and to serve others. So what does it take to raise the next generation? It takes courage. It takes trust in God's care. It instills a love for God and others. And guess what? It could change the world. 
It could change the world. And I don't say that just as a cliche. I seriously mean it. As we follow Moses' life, he was the man that God had decided would lead the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. There's no way his mom knew that this little baby she placed in this basket would fulfill that role. But raising the next generation, raising Moses, was the first domino that led to this thing that changed the world and changed her people forever. So you might think, okay, Ryan, I get it. I need to have courage. I need to trust in God. But how do I do these things? Like, what should I do to show courageous faith? How do I deepen my trust in God? Because it's really back and forth sometimes. How do I instill a love for God and a love for others in this kid I'm mentoring, in my niece, in my child, in my son or my daughter? Well, it all starts with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the absolute foundation of this. See, all of us, me, you, every single person, we wanted to be our own gods. God created the world. He was the authority of the world, but he created us to have a relationship with him. He taught us how to live life. And we said, nope, I don't want that. I don't really want the relationship with you, God, and I know better. I know what I need to do. That's called sin. That's called going over God's authority or cosmic treason. And God said, okay, you want that? Our relationship with God was cut off, and all of us are headed to eternally be separated from him. That's what hell is. So we were living this way. We were hopeless. We can't somehow make up for committing cosmic treason. And I love the story of Moses because Jesus was the greater Moses, right? Jesus was God, fully God. He had all the blessings, all the privileges that came with being God. But he didn't stay in that state. He was fully God and he became fully man, willingly giving up using some of those privileges to live as we are. Just like Moses, he identified with people in slavery, in bondage to sin. And Jesus lived a perfect life with a perfect relationship with God the Father. He never disobeyed. He never tried to power trip and go against the Father's authority. Jesus deserved that life, but instead, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the fact that he died on the cross. We should have been on that cross. That's the punishment we deserve. But Jesus took it for us. He paid the penalty of our sin for us by dying on the cross. And three days later on Easter, we celebrate that he even defeated death, Satan's last attack, last weapon. And Jesus gives us this amazing message. If we put our faith in him, if we admit that we're sinners and helpless and that he is the God who lived perfectly for us, if we put our faith, our hope, our trust in that, then we can have our relationship with God restored and we will live forever with him. One day on a renewed earth when sin's totally eradicated. If we put our faith in Jesus, he's like Moses. He leads us out of captivity, out of bondage to sin and to life, to the promised land that we'll have here on earth with God. And so that is the good news. It starts with that. Because get this, if you wonder, how can I have more trust in God? How can you not trust someone who selflessly dies for you? God was God. He didn't get anything out of the deal. He wasn't trying to manipulate us. He selflessly died for us. I can trust in someone like that. And when we see that he did that for us, that he loves us that much, he's not some cruel God sitting up in the sky that likes watching us suffer. 
He knows what's best for us. That might confuse us. It might anger us. Sometimes we don't know why things happen, but we can trust that he's caring for us. And when we realize that's who God is and how he's taking care of us and how he wins, then we can show courageous faith. It builds courage into us because nothing will ultimately separate us from God. Even death, that's the biggest power people use, the threat of death. Even that won't separate us from God. We can have courage to do the right thing even when the world says it's not the right thing. And ultimately, that means when we love God and we find our security, we find our value, we find our significance from him, we can actually love other people and not just cling on to them to find significance or value or validation or a job or anything else. We can actually give ourselves to others. So as people raising the next generation, it starts with letting that gospel message permeate our whole brain, our hearts, sink into every crack and crevice of our lives. And after we've done that, that's absolutely bedrock. The next step is just keep the most important thing the most important thing. There's so many factors to raising the next generation, but the ultimate goal isn't to create a D1 athlete who becomes the next Tom Brady. The ultimate goal isn't to have the person who, or the child, who has a perfect ACT or SAT score and gets full rides to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. The goal isn't to relate raise the most religious child who's here every church service and has half the Bible memorized and knows every single right answer. The true goal is to have the next generation love God and love others. So teach that message to them that God died for their sins. He sent Jesus to die for their sins. And if they put their faith in him, they can find that eternal life. And they can have that hope. They can have that security. They can have that grounding that you have when you have a relationship with God, instead of searching everywhere in the world to try to find those answers. And then we can teach them you can seriously give to others and give yourself, because you're not clinging to others to find that significance and meaning and value, like we just mentioned. I was reading the other day, as you know, Time Magazine, they regularly have, or yearly, I guess, their list of the most influential people of the year. And for 2021, the most influential person was Elon Musk. They say they choose the most influential people based on the impact they have on culture and if they have high caliber jobs. Now I was thinking about this. The most influential person in the world is Elon Musk, and he had absolutely zero impact on my life. I can't point to anywhere he impacted my life. And I'm guessing you wouldn't either unless you drive a Tesla or have stock in Tesla or one of his companies. So toss that list out the window. Let's get real for you, the real personal list of the most influential people in your life. And you know who would crack the top 10 and maybe even the top five? Your mom, a parent, a caring mentor, that coach who really cared, that teacher who went the extra mile for you. You know, in our world, raising the next generation isn't glorified. It's usually downplayed. Wow, you gave up this promising career. You're never going to break any type of ceiling. You could have lived this great life, but you gave it up for this child. They're so annoying. It's a nuisance. They're viewed as a problem, but, they, but raising the next generation is a dignified task. It has a huge, huge impact that can be felt for generations to come.
So my encouragement for you is to have that courageous faith and act on it, to trust in God's care. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you. You can trust him, and he ultimately controls the outcomes. To instill a love for God and others, and who knows? We might be maturing another Moses right in our very midst. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day where we can celebrate mothers and the gift they are to us. I thank you, God, that we can trust you for the beauty of what you've done for us, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Thank you, God, for providing for us, for caring for us. And Lord, I pray that all of us would do our part in raising the next generation, that we would teach them to love you, that you care for us and the essence of life is living it with you. Please seal this message on our hearts, Lord, as we go from here today. In Jesus' name, amen.